the book of Exodus, and arrive now at the giving of the Ten Commandments. As you're turning there, I am going to do one of two things right now. I'm either going to steal his thunder of what he plans on saying at communion, or I'm going to embarrass him because he wouldn't want it said, but either way, I'm saying it. Today is the first Sunday in February, and it marks the 28th anniversary of when God called Pastor Kevin and his wife Valerie to Christ Community Church. Amen. I could go on forever. Uh, I won't because this is about Jesus. It's not about Kevin and Val, but, uh, but thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> All right, get it together, man. Exodus chapter 20, uh, Pastor Andrew just read the whole pericope to us. This morning we will read verses 1 through 3, which is our text. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your holy word tells us that whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Father, we ask now that we would revere your commandments through the person and work of your Son, Jesus. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It was on May 4th, 2012, that the Avengers first assembled in the MCU. Of course, the MCU was conceived in 2008 with the first Iron Man film, and then over the course of four years, the stories of Iron Man and Hulk and Captain America and Thor and all the rest built to the climax of the film, the 2012 Avengers film. The Avengers had no choice but to assemble in 2012 because Loki, who is Thor's brother, and he's also the Norse god of mischief, Loki attempted to subjugate all of humanity. He was going to be the king, the lord, the god of planet Earth. And so the Avengers have to stop him. And, and Iron Man and Captain America and Black Widow and Others, they get into a plane and they're chasing after Loki at, at a certain point in the film. And this is the first time we're going to see everyone together because Thor descends from the sky. He's come to take care of Loki as well. So they're on the plane and Iron Man, you know, opens the back and flies out. And uh, Captain America begins to put his parachute on. And Black Widow warns him. She says, I'd sit this one out, Cap. And Captain America responds, uh, I don't see how I can. And Black Widow says, these guys come from legend. They're basically gods. 
And Captain America has the line of the film when he says, there's only one God, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. (laughs) This monotheism expressed by Captain America indeed is an excellent summary of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. As we begin our 10-week series now through the Ten Commandments, uh, we do not do so in a vacuum. Of course, we've been preaching through the book of Exodus together as a church, and the Exodus narrative has been leading us to this point. God's redemption of His people prepares us for God's revelation to His people. God's redemption of his people prepares us for his revelation to his people. And here's the thing. To some extent or another, we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. But often there's confusion about how Christians ought to apply the Ten Commandments. You may or may not know this, that many United States government buildings had the Ten Commandments on display Uh, until changes in recent years have uh, made their way to the Supreme Court, and a lot of those have been removed. But it's a part of our history. American history, American culture, American law have been shaped by the Ten Commandments, though even now many people want nothing to do with them. But it's ingrained in us. We, you know, even if you're here, if you're not a Christian, if you've never been to a church service before, if you um, don't read your Bible, you've heard of the Ten Commandments, whether it's because of, uh, you know, an old movie starring Charlton Heston or because, you know, when, when you pick up Cosmo magazine, they have an article about the Ten Commandments, about what and what not to wear. It's just ingrained in who we are. We know the vocabulary. But the question is, what, is it, what do they mean for us today? Is there any difference between how they apply to Israel and to Christ's community church? How do we think about and apply the Ten Commandments in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? These are some of the questions that we will answer in the next 10 weeks. One more thing, though, before we jump into the first commandment, I want to encourage you as we move through this series, as Pastor Kevin and I move through the Ten Commandments, uh, just an encouragement. If you've never memorized the Ten Commandments before, use this series to do so. For multiple millennia, the church has used the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments both in discipleship and in liturgy. Memorize these three. Meditate on these three. Study them. Sometimes, if you don't know how to pray, pray through the Apostles' Creed. Pray through the Lord's Prayer. Pray through the Ten Commandments and repent because you've broken the Ten Commandments. Sometimes, you know, low church Christians in the vein of our history, get caught up in this, well, if if your prayer's not extemporaneous, then it's not genuine. If if you're just not thinking of things off the top of your head, then you're not really praying. Don't buy into that lie. That's a lie from hell. 
when we pray scripture, we have confidence that everything that we're praying is true and good. Man, when we pray extemporaneously, man, there's no telling what kind of heresy I've prayed in my life. I know you have too. And I'm not saying that that's wrong either, but both are good and both have their place. And so um, use this series. Use this series. If, if you're unfamiliar with the Ten Commandments, if you have never really thought about them much, if you don't have them memorized, if you've never prayed through them, or you just use this series as the opportunity to jump into the game, man. It's not too late. Use it as part of your devotional life. But as we look now at the Ten Commandments and the First Commandment uh, specifically, we should note that the Ten Commandments uh, also have been referred to as the Decalogue. Pastor Kevin and I will both be using that term throughout the sermon series as well. The Decalogue, it means ten words. So you call it the Ten Commandments, you call it the Decalogue, you call it the ten words. Scripture never explicitly calls them the Ten Commandments. That's something that we've retroactively, retroactively applied to them. Uh, but the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, what these ten words are is they are a summary of God's character. They're not, they don't tell us everything about God's character, but they are a summary of the character of God, and then in turn, God's expectation for his image bearers. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are the first ever written word of God, and the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God himself. That's what Exodus 31, 18 tells us. So all of the scripture, all of the narrative before the Ten Commandments was passed down through oral tradition, and then we get the beginning of written scripture when God himself writes the Ten Commandments. If you've ever been to Epcot before and you ride Spaceship Earth, you know, they do this whole like, history of communication and, and how humanity has developed. And one of the best parts is when they say that if you, if you know the alphabet and you ever use the alphabet, then thank the Phoenicians because the Phoenicians invented the alphabet, apparently, or it's derived from, you know, what they use, what we use today is derived from there. Well, the first ever written scripture, we're going to thank God himself for this, because by the finger of God, the Ten Commandments were written, and from this point forward now, scripture begins to be written. Moses is going to write the stories of Genesis and the stories of the Exodus to fill in, to, so that the people, now that the people have these ten words, we see the seeds, the beginning of the written scripture. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is not the sum of God's law, but it is indeed the summary of God's law. It's not the sum total. It's not all of God's law, but it is the summary of God's law. There are 613 laws in the Old Covenant, but all 613 of those laws fall under the umbrella of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are applied in all these different areas that make up 613 different laws. And these 10 words then set the standard for God's people under the Old Covenant. You see, there were other religions. We saw some of this in Egypt, but there were other pagan religions in the ancient Near East who worshipped pagan gods, lowercase g, gods. And these pagan gods would demand rituals uh, of their people, cultic. They would demand that people would cut themselves 
in the name of religion. They would demand that people would engage in sexual immorality in the name of religion. Some even demanded child sacrifice in the name of religion. I'm not talking about America. I know it might sound like it. I'm talking about the ancient Near East. But Al Mohler notes that in the Ten Commandments, God is telling all of his people that none of that is required, that he does not demand such things. God's people must simply heed these ten words if they are to keep covenant with Yahweh. And the first thing we have to notice from this text, it's, it's a, the, the preamble of sorts to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments, is that God's commandments are grounded in his redemptive acts. Before God gives his people his law, he reminds them of his salvation. He saves them and then gives them his law. Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives the first commandment. We can't mess that order up. Because God delivered his people from slavery, they are to keep his commandments. God does not say, if you keep my commandments, I will redeem you. He says, I have redeemed you, so keep my commandments. Salvation precedes obedience. The indicative precedes the imperative. What is true comes before what you're supposed to do. Because you cannot obey God's commands apart from his redemption. It is impossible to please God apart from faith, the book of Hebrews tells us. And so the way that God now initiates his old covenant follows a very common ancient Near Eastern pattern. You may have heard this term before, known as the uh, suzerain-vassal treaty. Suzerain-vassal treaty. What happened was in the ancient Near East when a king would conquer a group of people, that those people were now subject to that king because he had won the battle, he had won the war, he had conquered the people, and the king would give this suzerain-vassal treaty so that the people now knew what, were, what was required of them because they are now citizens of a different kingdom. They were conquered by a different king, they are now citizens of a different kingdom, and this suzerain-vassal treaty then says these are the 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 rights, responsibilities, obligations, duties, and privileges of this kingdom. And that's the format that God uses now with Israel as he gives them the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. After Yahweh redeemed Israel from Egypt, they were no longer subject to Egypt. They are now a new nation, and Yahweh is their king. These Ten Commandments contain the requirement of God's redeemed people. And much like the Ten Commandments are the summary of all 613 Old Covenant laws, the First Commandment is the summary of the Ten Commandments. The First Commandment is like an umbrella that covers all ten. You shall have no other gods before me. If you break commandments 2 through 10, you're also breaking the first commandment. 
because you are putting another God before the one true God. Negatively stated, the first commandment forbids idolatry. Positively stated, the first commandment requires worship of the one true God. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 95, defines idolatry as this. This is the definition of idolatry. Having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. So idolatry is worship of anything other than the triune God. Worship is when we give of all that we are to someone or something. Worship is when our desires, our affections, our attitudes, our words, or our deeds are captivated and consumed by someone or something. We are worshiping someone or we are worshiping something when that person or thing is what we live for. When we believe that this person or object, that with this person or object, we will be most satisfied, and without this person or object, life is not worth living. That's what worship is. When worship is given to anyone or anything other than God, it is idolatry. This is important to understand because worship isn't just singing before the sermon. Worship is what captures the affections of your heart. And everyone worships. There's not a soul who's ever lived who doesn't worship. Why? Because God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. That's how and why God created us. Every person who's ever lived, God created us male and female. He created us in his own image, and he created us to glorify him. Because that's true, humans are born worshipers. We can't help but worship. So the question is not whether everyone worships. The question is whether we're going to worship the one true God or someone, or something else. The other nations in the ancient Near East practiced pagan polytheism. Every religion today, apart from Christianity, is idolatry. But in the first commandment, God's people are being called to covenantal monotheism. This is important. They are called to monotheism. Monotheism means one God. So it's not polytheism, it's not multiple gods, it's not atheism, it's no God, it's monotheism, there is one God. But it's not just monotheism, it's covenantal monotheism. They are in covenant with the one true God. That's what's happening as Yahweh is giving Moses the law. Moses is the mediator, he intercedes between God and the people. God is in covenant with his people God is teaching his people that he is the one true God and that he alone deserves worship. The one true God who created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2 is the same God who redeemed his people from slavery 
And he is the same God who is giving them these 10 words. And don't get this wrong either. This God, this one true God, this creator, redeemer God is not a distant or impersonal God. He's not a God of agnosticism or he's not a God of deism where he he might be there, but he's hands off. No, God reveals himself as personal. He uses personal language with us. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. That phrase before me is the Hebrew phrase alpani. Woodenly, it means before my face. You shall have no other gods before my face. Why? Because God wants to be face to face with his people. He does not want them bringing idols before his face. And church, we have to note that in light of New Testament revelation, not the book of Revelation, though it's included, but the, the, the revelation of the entire New Testament, that to rightly interpret the first commandment, we cannot merely subscribe to monotheism, but we must believe and not deny Both are important. We must believe and not deny Trinitarian monotheism. The one true God has revealed himself as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Judaism and every other world religion apart from Christianity is pagan idolatry because it denies the Holy Trinity. Israelites, Jewish people are monotheists. Islam, monotheist. Both pagan idolatry because they deny the one true God, the Holy Trinity. In order to be a Christian, you must believe and at the same time not deny this statement. There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a hard boundary differentiating Christianity from everything else. Christians from non-Christians. If you cannot wholeheartedly say that you believe in this statement, there are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you say you believe in God. It doesn't matter if you say you follow Jesus or that you read your Bible or go to church. If you cannot embrace and not deny that statement, historically speaking, you are not a Christian. God has revealed himself as three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you deny so, you are the definition of a heretic. So we call you even now on this Sunday, believe the truth about God. Please don't give yourself to silly myths and philosophies on the internet. Oneness Pentecostals are not Christians. Now, if there are some in the group who are trusting in Jesus alone and aren't actively denying this, maybe. But if you are actively denying the truth about God revealed in orthodoxy, You are not a Christian. Believe the truth. Believe the truth. 
And it was this Holy Trinity who made a covenant together amongst the three of them themselves before the foundation of the world that the Father would send the Son to redeem his people. And so that's what happened. The second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, became human in the incarnation when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We confessed it earlier in the Apostles' Creed. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he lived without sin. Jesus followed the law of God perfectly in word, thought, and deed. Jesus is the only human who ever lived who never broke the first commandment. He's the only human in the history of the world who never broke the first commandment. Jesus never had any gods before the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus never practiced idolatry. Jesus never worshiped anyone or anything other than the one true God. And church, it's not just that Jesus never practiced idolatry. That's the negative side of the commandment. The positive side of the commandment is that Jesus always actively loved the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. In Luke chapter 10, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks him, how can I attain eternal life? Jesus answers his question with a question. You know what Jesus says? He says, what does the Bible say? What does scripture say? It's not a bad answer, right? If anyone ever asks you a question, you're stuck. Man, what does the Bible say? That's what Jesus did. And the man knows what the Bible says. He quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, back to Jesus. Luke 10, 27, the, man, the lawyer says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You know why he, he quotes it that way? You know why the Shema says that? And then elsewhere in Leviticus, it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself because those two commandments, the first and second greatest commandment that Jesus says, they are a summary of the Ten Commandments. Right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is a summary of the first four commandments. And then to love your neighbor as yourself is a summary of the last six commandments. So this, this man, this, this is the answer. How can I have eternal life? Is what he says. Jesus says, what does the Bible say? The man basically says, follow the Ten Commandments. Right? And Jesus says, that's correct. That's right. That's exactly right. At that point, the man tries to justify himself. That's what Luke tells us, that he begins to justify himself. And he asks, well, who really is my neighbor? You know, love your neighbors yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Who do I got to love? That's what he says. He's, he's already trying to, 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 to justify himself, to, to feel like he's done what he's supposed to do. That's what he said. You know what he should have said? He should have said, Jesus, I can't do that. I can't love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. I, Jesus, I can't love my neighbor as myself. I'm a sinner. And you know what? If the lawyer had said that, Jesus would have said, I know. That's why I came to do it for you. 
Not only did Jesus live righteously, but also Jesus died on the cross then, paying the penalty for our sin in the place of sinners. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God, paying the penalty for all of God's elect. The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And death spread to all men because all sinned. On Friday night, Bethany made cookies, and as they were ready to be consumed, she said, all right, everybody gets one. And one of the kids running towards the kitchen, their immediate response was, I want two! But that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, God told Adam, you can eat anything in the world except for one tree. Man, that's what we do. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And we say, well, we want to we worship someone or something else. God says, you shall not murder. And we say, but we want to kill our babies so that we can have sex whenever we want to. And God says, only have sex with the person you're married to. And we say, we want to have sex with whoever we want to. That's what we do. You can have one cookie. I want two. That's called sin. Sin is missing the mark of God's holiness. That's what it is. That's what we do. Jesus never did that, the act of righteousness. Okay, But then Jesus, who never sinned, this is the beautiful irony of the gospel, the only one who never sinned is the one who's bearing the hell of all of his people who did sin. On the cross, when when God the Father pours his wrath out on his son Jesus, every sin that I've ever committed, because I'm a Christian, because I believe in Jesus, Jesus not only experienced the wrath of God, he experienced the guilt and the shame that was rightly mine. But he never sinned. Jesus is the only human in the history of the world who was content with one cookie. actively righteous, and then he was buried. Man, we had a great class this morning, Pastor Brett's class about the resurrection of Jesus. You talk to any serious historian, Pastor Brett, I'm stealing this from him. I'm giving him credit once, and then, then next time I'll say, as I always say. <laughs> but he said there, there are three things that every serious historian, believe it or not, um, that, that everyone knows is true. And if you deny this, then, then you are a fool who stands outside of common knowledge, essentially. That there was a man named Jesus who lived, that he died, that he was buried, and that three days later his tomb was empty. Everyone agrees on that. Now, people disagree with what happened there. But that's, that's historical fact. Jesus was buried. He died, he was buried But as Christians, we know that on the third day, the tomb was empty because Jesus resurrected from the dead. Understand, this isn't isn't just something that we say and we don't don't have to know what it means. This is why it all ties together. Jesus never sinned, right? Jesus died paying the penalty for the sins of his people. Jesus was buried. The reason why he could rise again from the dead, the reason why God rose, 
resurrected him from the dead wasn't arbitrary to just say, hey, look what I can do. Because he never sinned, death couldn't hold him down. The power of death is the, the guilt of our sin. But if someone never sins, well then, you know, Jesus gave him the stone cold stunner and he got up. Jesus made death tap out because Jesus is righteous. This was only possible because not only did Jesus follow the first commandment, I want you to track with me here, Jesus is the only person who ever followed the first commandment. But also, Jesus is the fulfillment of the first commandment. Meaning the only reason the first commandment was written to begin with was to lead us to Jesus. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus Christ fulfills the first commandment because not only is he truly man, but he is truly God. Jesus is divine. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity. John 14, 6 through 7, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Greek word, he has made him known, it's where we get the word exegesis from. Jesus is the one who exegetes the Father. He explains the Father to us. Colossians 1.15-17, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John eight fifty eight. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. When Jesus makes this statement, he is intentionally referencing Exodus chapter 3 when Moses, Exodus 3 and 4, when, Moses, when Yahweh calls Moses through the burning bush and Moses says, who should I tell Israel sent me? And the Lord says, I am. Tell them I am sent you. In fact, the, the name Yahweh, the covenant name Yahweh, you see in your Bible where the word Lord is in all capital letters. That's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh is actually just the third person singular of the phrase I am. So Yahweh literally means he is. God said I am and what do we call him then? We call him well, he is. That's what, that's what Israel called him. What do we call him now? We call him Jesus because Jesus said before Abraham was I am. Jesus is identifying with Yahweh. This is, this is very hermeneutically important. Please don't miss this. Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. This is why they wanted to kill him. He said, I am Yahweh. 
I am the God who created all things. Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus said, I'm the one who told Moses to go get you from Egypt. Jesus said, I'm the one who gave you the Ten Commandments. He's not saying I'm like him or he's my dad or I know him. Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. When you see the Lord in all caps in in your Old Testament, that is Jesus. That is a pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God. Jesus is not only the singular human to keep the first commandment, but Jesus is also the God about whom the first commandment is written. So as we consider then how to apply the first commandment to Christ Community Church on February 5th, 2023, we must start with this. We've already mentioned this, but this is the beginning place. If you're here, if you're you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, this is the starting point. We must start with the fact that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that one God in three persons has been revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is how we know God. And so to worship anyone or anything else other than Jesus is to break the first commandment. We can only rightly worship God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's important. That means Jews are not rightly worshiping God. That means that Muslims are not rightly worshiping God. That means it doesn't matter if someone says, God bless America. If they're not worshiping God through faith in Jesus, they are practicing idolatry. They are breaking the first commandment. And of course, the Reformed tradition has always defined faith with three components, knowledge, assent, and trust. So the first element of faith is knowledge. What does that mean? What does knowledge mean? What does it mean that I have to have a specific knowledge to have faith in Jesus? That means to have faith in Jesus means that you know that you have the knowledge that God is holy, that you are a sinner, and that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone can you experience the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. If you don't know that, then you don't have faith. The hypothetical man on the desert island who's never heard of Jesus is going to go to hell because he doesn't have the right knowledge. It doesn't matter if you go out and watch the sunset and say, thank you, Lord. That's not going to save you. This knowledge is painfully specific. You must know that God is holy, that you deserve hell, for your sin, and that's only through Jesus that you can be saved. But knowledge alone will send you to hell. You must also assent to the validity of Scripture's truth claims about Jesus Christ. You must believe that the person and work of Jesus actually happened. 
You can't think it's a legend or a myth or a fairy tale. You have to think, you have to know it's true. That being said, knowledge and assent are not enough. You must also, tr- also trust in Christ alone. That means you must place the full weight of your hope, the full weight of your righteousness on Jesus. That means if you were to stand before God on this day and he were to say, why should I forgive your sins? Why should I give you eternal life? That your only answer must be because Jesus died for my sins. And Jesus rose again on the third day and my trust is in him alone. That's what trust is, and that's what faith is, knowledge, assent, and trust. And it's only possible because when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus accomplished what theologians call the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus took our sin, and he experienced God's wrath for our sin. All the hell that I deserve for my sin in word, thought, and deed was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Because my faith is in him. So that when we take Christ by faith, Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. This is your only hope in life and death. Why? Because you have broken the first commandment. And because that's true, you rightly deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. Jesus never broke the first commandment. And if your faith is in him, his righteousness is imputed to you. You are in union with Christ so that when God sees you in Christ, he sees one who never broke the first commandment. Because when God sees you, if your faith is in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So as we consider how to apply then the first commandment as Christians, because that's the first step, right? If you're not a Christian yet, none of the rest of what I'm going to say is going to be effective for you. You need to take Christ by faith. For those of us who are Christians, and, and we consider now how we apply the first commandment, there are some hermeneutical principles that we have to enlist so that we can rightly interpret the Ten Commandments. Under the Old Covenant... So before Jesus, the Ten Commandments were simultaneously Scripture and law. They were both of those things. They were the law of God. They were Scripture, the revelation of God. And so the Reformed tradition then talks about the three uses of God's law. There's the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. Those are the three uses of God's law. Under the Old Covenant... The law had a civil use, meaning the law, the 613 laws of the Old Covenant, were the law of the land. That's, it governed the people. They were a theocracy. Scripture and law were the same. The second use was ceremonial, meaning the law governed Israel's worship of God. It was their liturgy. The third use was the moral use. We already mentioned this, that the law reveals God's character and the duties of those who are in covenant with him. That was under the old covenant, before Jesus. Now, under the new covenant, the law is 
Scripture, but it is not law. The Ten Commandments still carry their moral use for us now, but the civil and the ceremonial are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The ceremonial use of the law was fulfilled because Jesus is the true and final sacrifice for God's people. So again, don't, we need to get the hermeneutics right. It's not just like, well, they did that then, that was kind of weird, glad we don't do that now. That was law, this is grace, just like it arbitrarily turned over. No, it didn't arbitrarily change, it was fulfilled. The only reason they sacrificed animals under the old covenant was to lead us to Jesus. So it was fulfilled in Christ. Um, The civil use of the law is fulfilled because Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom, and his kingdom is not defined by blood and soil. The kingdom of Jesus is defined by faith and water, by bread and wine. So for the new covenant Christian, the law does not carry its civil or its ceremonial use, but it still carries its moral use. And Jesus makes that clear when, even as he's preaching, he's using the Ten Commandments. I mean, he just said to the guy, how do I inherit eternal life? What does the scripture say? Follow the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, that's correct. The moral use is still intact The moral use is eternal. It reveals the character of God and the duties for his people. So to worship anything or anyone other than the triune God through the person of Jesus is idolatry and it is sin. That's not something that was true for them then, but it's not true for us now. If we worship any other God than the one true God through Jesus, we break the first commandment. We practice idolatry. We practice sin. We can be tempted to think that we're not idolaters, though, because we don't bow down to a golden calf or because we don't bow down to that little tiki statue from the Brady Bunch. But John Calvin was correct when he said that our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts, because they're fallen in sin, are always producing new idols. So in our culture, we may not be tempted to worship pagan gods represented by statues, but we worship money, and we worship sex, and we worship power, and status, and vocation, and relationships, and education, and we worship zodiac signs. And we worship our emotions, and we worship political parties, and we worship celebrities. Remember our definition of worship from earlier. Worship is anything you're trusting in other than the God revealed in the Bible. Worship is anything that captivates the deepest emotions of your heart. The thing that you say, I can't live without that. The thing that you say, if I don't have that, my life is not worth living. So maybe it's not the golden calf, but maybe it's a certain amount of money in the bank. Oh my gosh, we would just, there'd be no way to live if I did not have this. Fill in the blank. When any of these things, or anything that I haven't even mentioned, sits on the throne of your heart in the place of Jesus Christ, you are breaking the first commandment. The heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. So the question is, where does your allegiance lie? Where do your affections lie? 
Where is your trust? Where is your hope? If your answer is anything other than Jesus Christ, then you must repent of that idolatry and you must trust in Christ alone. Because you can dress up idolatry any way you want. You can dress it up as patriotism. You can dress it up as financial security. You can dress it up as hard work or religion. You can even dress it up as love. No matter how you dress it up, if your trust is in anything other than Jesus, then it's just dressed up idolatry. And there's only one God, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would keep your promise, that your word would not return void. Father, we ask for anyone in the gathering this morning who is not trusting in Jesus alone, that your Holy Spirit would take your word and work regeneration in their hearts, that they would see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and that they would repent and believe in the good news. Father, we pray for your people that they would be sanctified by the truth. We believe that your word is the truth. Father, we ask that as we move through this series on the Ten Commandments, that you would reveal to us where we put other gods before you. And Lord, that you would enable us to repent and to believe in the one true God as revealed through your Son, Jesus. And that in word, thought, and deed, you would teach us to pray as your Son, Jesus, did when he said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.